Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, host of our ongoing conversation about disruption, innovation, and how technology is changing everything around us. We Canadians like to think of ourselves as a nation of entrepreneurs. And sure, there are more than a million Canadians who run their own businesses. Unfortunately, fewer than 2% of those are under the age of 30. We'd like to change that. So every summer, we hold a special edition of RBC Disruptors to look at how younger Canadians can get going with their own businesses. This year, we featured two remarkable young entrepreneurs, Julia Kirouac, the founder of Nude Food, a nutritional snack company, and Braden Ream, founder of VoiceFlow, one of the hottest startups this year in voice technology. We recorded this episode live at RBC Waterpark Place with more than 500 RBC students in the audience. Here's our conversation with Julia and Braden. We hope you enjoy it. Which entrepreneur inspires you most, Julia? Oh man, I was going to steal yours. Yeah. Should I? Rearrange this. <laughs> okay, so we, we're not ganging up on you, I promise. Um, definitely in the food space, just because, spoiler alert, that's what I'm in. Um, I really respect a lot of the people who have been in it, like the OGs who have been in it for a really long time and have really forged the path of organic. So um, there's definitely a lot that uh, come to mind. The founder of Stony Field Organics is incredible. Uh, I'm going with the classic Elon Musk. Uh, it's incredible to do one billion dollar company in your lifetime, let alone four or five. You know, his side projects have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, so uh, he's pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Okay, so tell us about your billion dollar dreams. Uh, Julia, we'll start with you. First of all, describe your company. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I'm a food manufacturer. So um, my brand is called Nude Food, and we produce some of the highest quality nutrient-dense snacks on the market. Obviously, I'm biased, but I'm a nutritionist too, so I can back that up. <laughs> Um, and we make just healthy snacks for convenience and they're sold nationally. We have sweet ones and savory. And uh, you want me to say my billion dollar dream instead? Yeah. Okay, so obviously just to sell as many products as possible. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Spoiler. Um, but yeah, just because my, so my sole mission as a nutritionist is to improve the way people eat. So part of that is obviously getting more functional nutrition um, incorporated into everyone's daily diets. So if we're selling more, that means we're impacting more lives and having people eat more nutrient-dense foods. So that's my ultimate goal. Yeah. I, I love that answer because some, something I've learned from entrepreneurs is, of course, they want to grow their business, but it's, their real passion is changing the world, which they're going to do through their, through their business. Yeah. Braden, tell us uh, what you're up to. Sure. Braden, by the way, was a summer student at RBC last summer. So we'll get yeah. into uh, yeah, some yeah. of his learnings It's been there. a crazy year. Um, so if you're using an Alexa or Google Assistant on the front end, so uh, if you're a little techie, that's actually a voice user interface when you're having a conversation back and forth. And so when people are actually building voice apps for these uh, devices, uh, the phone lines that you call into the big banks, those are all voice user interfaces. There's actually no good conversational design software, and that's where we come in. So we're almost like an Adobe for uh, voice user interfaces. Uh, and I think today we power over 8 to 12 million conversations a month, depending on how busy the traffic is that month. So uh, that's what we do. We're like Adobe for voice interfaces. So let's talk about what inspired you, what sparked you to be an entrepreneur versus doing any number of other things that you probably could have done. There's something like 1.17 million small businesses in the country. Uh, so lots of entrepreneurs out there. What made you, Braden, I'm gonna start with you, want to take that, uh, take yeah. that path? In, um, I think, high school, I had a media project where they said, come up with an idea for an app. 
and I have a super obsessive personality, and so I came up with this app idea, and after the project was done, I didn't really want to let it go. Uh, and so over that summer, uh, I went off to with my family, and I downloaded a PDF on how to learn C++, because that was like the first thing I learned uh, when I was like, how to code an app, and it was like C++. If any of you are techie, you know that's a horrible first language to learn, but um, that's, that's what I did that summer, is I learned C++, uh, and I just started to build apps and side projects, and I had a blast doing it. I just love to build things, and you know, when you think about the coolest thing in life to build is a company which builds other things, right? So building sort of the, the factory that also builds the products. Uh, and so to me, that you know, I just got hooked, and I've uh, been doing it ever since. And Julia, what, uh, what sparked you? Yeah, you used so, to be in ballet, right? So that's, yeah. a, that's a real pivot. Yeah, so I, I used to be a ballet dancer. Or the expression, it was a pivot. That, that's, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I used to be a ballet dancer. I was living abroad uh, in San Francisco and New York. Um, I had some really terrible injuries that ended my career. And when I came back, I mean, that had already been an alternate route for me to take. Um, I chose to do ballet instead of go off to university, as I saw all my peers do. So I was kind of already okay with taking an alternate route um, and sticking my neck out. And um, when I came back, I'm a holistic nutritionist too, as I said, so I'm really passionate about feeding people good quality food. And what I saw in the marketplace was just deplorable. There's more options now, but it was garbage. Too much sugar and highly processed and making people sick, which is unacceptable, especially in a country where we have healthcare that is available to all Canadians. Um, so yeah, I just knew I could do better and just tried it. I'm really just unemployable, and I'm trying to say it in a really nice way. Uh, <laughs> that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only the, boss that will accept them is uh, themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's always, that's always the real, like, more candid answer. Yeah. So talk a bit about the, the entrepreneurial spirit, because probably a lot of people in the audience today are thinking, you know, could I, when, I, when I'm out of school, start my own business? And it t takes a certain spirit. Julia, you could have gone and worked for a food company or one of those great organic companies and probably done similar stuff, but you had to do it on your own. What, what's the spirit that drives that? I just saw a need in the marketplace and just did it. Like, I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like, I, I honestly didn't even think that much. Um, I was just like, I need to do this for humanity and Let's, let's just give it a go and figure it out. And that was literally it. It's not as cool of an yeah. answer. No, I, I, think that's <laughs> no, I think that's pretty common. No, no one says, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Where do I apply? Right. Yeah. There's no application. To be right. an entrepreneur, right. you just find you're doing it uh, one yeah. day. Braden, what? Uh, it's, it's funny. I, I often get asked, how do I get into the startup industry? I'm like, it is the easiest industry to break into. <laughs> you can just decide at any moment that you're in the startup industry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the like, keyword though is start. What was your start? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very similar to Julia. Like, I, I never coined myself as an entrepreneur until people are like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. Like, I guess I've just been building these side projects for, for a while now. And yeah, you, you just get really obsessive over it and you continue to do it for a long period of time. Uh, one of the tough things you're going to find when you're first starting out is people won't take you seriously. Uh, and so it's actually a really big hurdle. And that's where programs that uh, sort of support you as an early stage venture help you feel legitimate. Often it's like it's not about the capital. It's just like getting home from work and feeling like I'm an actual entrepreneur. Like I'm going to, you know, I did my nine to five. Now I'm going to do the five to nine. And that's where, you know, a lot of the, the really hard work comes. And uh, you just have to sort of power through that. And you were, as I mentioned, at RBC last summer, part of the Amplify mm -hmm. program. What did you learn? 
through that that's stuck with you in your, your business today? Yeah, I think I learned a lot about uh, what cross-functional teams look like. So I, I was like doing a little bit of coding, a little bit of designing, probably a little bit of what I should have been doing all, uh, for, for most of my time. Uh, and I think what Amplify taught me was, you know, there are designated roles for a reason. There are specialists, there are designers. Uh, you cannot do everything. And, uh, you know, now that we're growing to a bigger and bigger team, that's really important for me as a manager to uh, realize that I can't do everything and I have to delegate to people who are, are more specialized than me. And I think Amplify did a really good job sort of forcing you into these cross-functional teams. Yeah, we've talked about that before and it's one of the, the, the powers of being young is that you're probably more open to saying, look, I don't know how to do that. I got to go find someone who, who can do that. And you yeah. kind of delegate uh, to people who are a lot more experienced than you. How did you, when you, when you started VoiceFlow, actually t tell us a bit about day one, how you, uh, how you got it going. But what were the challenges? What did you learn about building that team that, and attracting that talent? One of the biggest challenges that I face is that you know, because I'm a young uh, entrepreneur is I don't know what I don't know. Um, so for example, I always know that we need more engineers because that's what I've been doing for three or four years. But I don't know uh, if I added a UX researcher, would that be valuable? Because I've never worked with a UX researcher before, at, you know, I guess besides Amplify. Uh, I don't know if I need a salesperson because I've never worked with a salesperson before. And so that's actually uh, where reaching out to people who have done this before, who have built these teams is really, really important because you do not know what you do not know. Uh, and it can be, it'd be a big challenge. Yeah, in terms of how we got started, so I did my first long-term venture uh, throughout college, building a social network because that was totally a good idea in 2015. Um, and I did that for about three years and that's where I got into tech. That's where I learned how to actually build teams, how to build product. Um, and after that sort of wound down, I met my co-founders through Next Canada and we just started to toy around with different ideas. The first couple ones failed. And at some point, uh, my co-founder Mike had uh, one of the early Echo Dots, like the hockey puck looking ones in his uh, room. And he thought, oh, these Alexa things are really interesting. We should try to play around with it had a couple ideas in voice commerce and eventually landed on, it sounds funny now, but interactive children's stories. It's a really good use case. Uh, there's no blue light. Parents are really worried about blue light when they're going to bed. They don't want their kids on screens. It's a great uh, bedtime activity for you to be in bed and be able to do an interactive uh, like children's story with your kid. You get like choose your own adventure. And so we did this for uh, five or six months. And as we were building this business, we actually raised half a million dollars for it. We realized it was really, really hard to build these interactive children's stories on, on Alexa. And so we were like, well, that's ridiculous. There should be more tooling, more modern ways to build these things. And that's where the idea for VoiceFlow came is, you know, let's put the children's stories on hold for a second and, you know, maybe one day we'll get back to it. But for now, let's build the tools to empower millions of other creatives to uh, build these voice interfaces more easily. And, and that's, that's how our idea came about. So I think as a country, we're not doing as well as we could in terms of convincing younger people to start their own businesses. The number we've got is 1.7% of entrepreneurs in the country are under the age of 30. What did you both find were the biggest challenges of getting going in your 20s, Julia? Well, I mean, to echo what you said as well, I think you really are naive, but I think that naivete kind of works in your favor in the sense that you really don't know what you're getting into uh, for better or worse and how hard it's going to be. And you're, you have obviously more energy <laughs> typically when you're a bit younger um, and don't have the same responsibilities with you know, family or a partner. So it's definitely um, our mortgages presumably, so it's a little bit easier to kind of dive in and put yourself in head first. But definitely challenges were hiring, you know, my business, specifically manufacturing and in food. So um, it's a very like old boys club. So going in as like a young female, tall blonde, they would not take me very seriously. Um, how, do you, how do you overcome that? 
I mean, just storm in and do your job. Like, I don't know. Like, it's definitely, it's obviously not only to my industry. It's tech. There's everywhere. Um, females have challenges. But yeah, I just kind of had to, you know, remove the noise. And, you know, if there was any harassment or, you know, whatever it is, just go above it and just, yeah, just do my job and get in and be like, I'm going to make this work, whether you want to support me or not. Just watch me and prove them wrong. So, yeah, that was just kind of the approach I did. Um, and yeah, with hiring, it was definitely a challenge when you're hiring people who are older. And How so? Walk, walk us through that experience. Yeah, it was just, it was just awkward for me um, because I'd only grown up in you know, my, my family and obviously uh, with my parents and my parental units, you know, it was like the older people are, you know, smarter and, you know, it's just you give respect, right? So you can still give respect, obviously, to an elder person who's um, an employee, but it just was a little bit different when it's like I'm supposed to have the answers and have everything all figured out um, and I'm paying you like it was just a little bit awkward um, at first but you get over it it's like you learn on the fly you figure out how to manage like that's one thing about entrepreneurship is you just figure it out as you go for sure and you constantly try and get better that's in product I'm sure again you could say the same you constantly try and just improve and learn from your failures and your mistakes and just implement all the changes required to really just get to that expert level so yeah and, and we were talking before we came on stage about how uh, all sorts of things also, yeah. <laughs> how powerful yeah. it is uh, to be a young entrepreneur because you can take chances that yes. you may not uh, be able to take later later in life totally yeah yeah like I know I won't be destitute like if I fail miserably um i'll be at least able to have that safety net and be looked after and obviously being in canada is incredible too like you have health care you know that there's at least a social security net to to support you um if you were to fail super miserably so yeah and, and Braden, as uh, as an entrepreneur in your 20s would have been the you've talked a bit about the challenges but what have been some of the the the, the strengths that you found as a, as a as a young entrepreneur yeah, I think um, you know one of the big things is you don't have to live on off much because you're not at a point in life where you have a mortgage. And so when we were starting uh, Storyflow uh, after the summer, we actually so I was at uh, in my last year of Ivy, and uh, I actually dropped out of Ivy to do this interactive children's story company. And you know the story I tell is my parents cried when I got into Ivy, and they certainly cried when I dropped out. <laughs> uh, and um, <laughs> those were tears of sadness or happiness? Oh, tears oh, of sadness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, even when we'd raise half a million dollars, uh, my I remember my parents coming, and be like, "Yeah, you know, this is this is cool, but when are you going to go back to school?" And and you know, it's it's certainly changed as numbers have gotten bigger. But um, yeah, that was the initial reaction. Yeah, but my point there was like, you can go, you can live at home, you can live, like we were paying ourselves, uh, our official salaries, even after raising half a million bucks, was uh, $12,000 a year. So $1,000 a month is pretty much a stipend to pay for, for food uh, and like lunches and like a couple, you know, Ubers and things like that. That's not something you can do later in life. Um, you know, the other thing is uh, people won't judge you at 22, 23, 24, if you have a little bit of an employment gap on your resume because you went, out, went off and tried a thing. Uh, and so the risk definitely does get larger as, as you get later in life. So I think if you have an idea that you want to pursue, uh, don't necessarily drop out of school, but um, yeah, just go for it because this is certainly the best time to do it. And how do you overcome the challenge of being the, 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 the 21-year-old or 22-year-old going into a business meeting or trying to make a sale or do a, do, yeah. do a hire? I, I, when I'm advising uh, younger entrepreneurs, I always try to say, do not bring up your age because at the end of the day, it's not about being the best 22-year-old CEO. It's about being the best CEO. It's a big mistake a lot of people make because they think that because they're doing this at a younger age, it makes them impressive. It, 
it is impressive, but it's much better. To, like that's a very low bar, right? To be the best 22-year-old CEO in Canada versus the best CEO, period, right? It's a much higher bar to strive for. Um, and I think people actually will respect you a lot more, and you'll, you'll get a lot more done. You'll actually become more impressive just through your successes by aiming for a much higher target. This is just me, but like I stripped all the age stuff from my LinkedIn. Um, so I'm 22, but like you cannot find that out. Right? Um, you can't find graduation dates or anything like that because when I go into a meeting, I just want you to be meeting with Braden, not you know some 22-year-old 22-year-old dropout. Yeah, I think if Elon Musk were here, he'd probably say that many, if not most, of the great things accomplished in history have been by people in their 20s. Yeah, that is sort of the perfect age to do remarkable things because you can take chances, but you've got the creative spark, the energy, yeah. uh, and you can see the f more into the future because you've got more of the future ahead well, of you. I, I think. Um, the, the previous point about being naive actually helping you is totally true. If we were sort of business savvy, we would not have started an interactive children's story company, right? But just putting one foot in front of the other and actually uh, in front of the other and actually just being naive allowed us to get to the point where we are today. Um, if we if we had known, like I'll tell you, the economics of our business right now cost two thousand dollars to create a story, and we had ten thousand dollars. Right, so we had five stories left before we completely went out of business. That, to us, that made sense because ten thousand dollars was a lot of money at the time. Right, that was uh, it felt like a very large number, and so that was okay. In hindsight, if we were actually more savvy, we may not be doing this today, and I, I might be uh, on, on a very different career trajectory. So yeah, being naive when you're young can actually be be a benefit for you as well. So something that's essential to entrepreneurship is an ability to roll with uh, roll with failure. I think it's uh, 7,000 businesses a year in Canada go, go bankrupt. That's kind of natural. People try things, they don't work out. Um, maybe you can share a couple of stories about your own uh, failures and how you adjusted with that. Julia, let's start with you. Yeah, I've had a lot. Um, it, there's definitely different challenges in every industry. Um, in food, there's a lot of challenges in regards that we have the responsibility of feeding people safe food. Every time a product goes out, it has to be the same, it has to be consistent, and it has to be safe. Um, so it's a lot of responsibility and reliability, and our margins are much less and much tighter in food. Um, so it doesn't give you a lot of play. To really make a lot of mistakes, um, you could be out of business. And food specifically has a really high fail rate. Um, it's really capital intensive. So in regards to biggest failures, I've had a ton. I'll pinpoint maybe a couple. Um, was that I did a UPC change, which if everyone's familiar with packaged goods, you've got the SKU on the back, the UPC. Um, that was terrible. If any of you ever have friends with anything that is a consumer good, don't ever do it. Um, I almost lost my whole business. Um, and then also, depending on suppliers, um, to put out the same standard of goods that I put out or I expect um, is also a big mistake. Um, again, being naive, I expected everyone had the same standards in general in business, and they don't, and you learn the hard way. So we had a packaging supplier that was actually selling us packaging um, that had holes in it. And we sent out a, a whole shipment um, in our launch in Loblaws, and all of them had holes. So we had to deal with that. Like, there's been so many. Um, I could talk for hours What, what, that, what did you learn from that experience? Don't trust people. Um, <laughs> no, um, at least d double check the packaging. Yeah, yes, no, it's, and we did. It, it, but when you're ordering like a hundred thousand, there's no way that you can test every single one. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's the thing I would say is the stigma around failure is that it's actually amazing to fail as long as you can get over it and stay in business <laughs> um, because you learn so much more from your failures and your mistakes, especially if you lose money. I find that's kind of the most impactful, unfortunately, because um, I will never forget, again, um, the areas where I've lost money. Um, 
And that just makes you better and more resilient. And then also when you get over those failures and those major hurdles, it really teaches you how resilient you are. Um, and that it either is gonna break your spirit or it's gonna make you come back even stronger. And we're still here, so yeah. It's an interesting point about trust because in large organizations like an RBC, there's a trust that, that, that's built in and there's standards that, that allow people to, uh, to trust each other. Very different from an entrepreneur on, on your own. How do you, how do you manage that question of trust? Because you've got to trust your suppliers, your partners, your, your, yeah. your, your customers, but you know that they're looking out for themselves as well. Yeah, so because we're in manufacturing, we have the supply um, suppliers on that end that bring in the, the raw materials. Um, and then we make it, and then our retailers and or the end consumer, if it's D2C, um, you know, they are trusting that we're also putting out a certain, again, safe good that isn't you know, contaminated with allergens or et cetera. So you know, whenever we send out a shipment, we're trusting that store to pay us. They don't usually. <laughs> um, there's not much we can do. Uh, and then with the suppliers, you know, we're trusting that it fits the um, certificate of analysis and all the lab tests. So you just learn like what to ask for, what to look for. You get samples. I mean, there's certain parameters you can set um, as you make mistakes to actually figure out this. This is the requirement I have in order to do business with you. And I think that's the same with people. Like, trust is earned. It's not something that's a right. So you have to earn that trust, and that's in everything in life, relationships business or personal. Mm. And, and Braden, tell, tell us a bit about your own experience with failure and what you've, what you've learned along the way. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, one caveat with every startup is you see all these large funding headlines and generally that's you know, the tip of the iceberg, right? There's 90% of the work is behind the scenes. There's nine failures for every one success, if not a much higher ratio than that. Um, and so with us, we actually had a really dark period between when we were pivoting from story flow to voice flow. Uh, we were running out of money. Um, at that point, we'd already dropped out, and so we, you know, we had, uh, had to do something for a year. We couldn't just run out of money and, and not do anything. Um, and so we actually were applying for all the accelerators, the Y Combinators, the World Creative Destruction Lab, uh, AngelList. We applied for pretty much every single accelerator you can imagine and got turned down by every single one. We got so desperate that there's a, um, not, not to put, it was a Western university has their own accelerator where you come to London and you work there for three or four months. Uh, and we got, didn't even get an interview for that. And we're like, oh my gosh, um, we're really in a bad spot. And so uh, we just basically cut our expenses down to zero and just had, had to continue to, to grind through it. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go into uh, individual failures here. Um, one of the things that we did really early on is we were an interactive children's story company. We built VoiceFlow as an internal tool. And so when you're building internal tools, and some of you uh, who, who might be developers working on them here know that the code is, uh, you know, spaghetti code. It just, it's just meant to work. It's not meant to be scalable and flawless. But all of a sudden, we turned our internal business into our external, into our core business. And so uh, for a couple months, we were working with the worst code base you've ever seen. And today, we power 6% of Alexa. And um, so when we would push a change and it would break, we'd take down 6% of Alexa. Um, so if any of you have asked your Alexa something in the middle of the night and it says, sorry, I don't know that, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, there's a 6% chance that was us. Um, and yeah, and so, so we, we actually had to spend this entire summer refactoring and redoing all of the work we did in those early days. And that was a huge learning for us is like, just do it properly the first time. Don't do it flawlessly, but get it to a point where in the future, you're not going to be kicking yourself if all of a sudden you have to you know, make it more scalable. So you, you talked about the incubator network in Canada. It, yeah. This is a great country to start a business in yeah. because there's incubators and accelerators all over the map there. Most of them are really good. So a great place to get going. 
tough country to scale in. We just don't have, you know, 35, 40 million people uh, versus, you know, the U.S. or China, yeah. uh, who you're ultimately going to be up against. I wonder how you both think about that, uh, that challenge and how you're going about scaling in what ultimately is a yeah. small, uh, small market. Braden, maybe we can yeah. start with you. Uh, you know, I, I think um, it really comes down to sort of the, what, what the, venture, the venture capital landscape looks like in, in uh, either country. So we've raised our initial pre-seed round was uh, with Canadian investors only. And then when we did our seed round, that was all with Silicon Valley uh, investors. And so we got to see both different, uh, sort of the two different perspectives. In Canada, uh, and this is shifting, um, the perspective is what do you have today? And then let's work forward you know, the next two, three years. Uh, what are your margins? What's your business look like? Let's walk through the numbers. In the US, the story flips in that they go, in three to five years, how big could this be? And then let's work backwards to where you are today. And so it's a very, it's a subtle mind shift, um, but it plays a huge difference in that they're backing a lot more moonshot companies and they're backing it with a lot more capital. Um, and again, uh, I think what's going to need to happen, I think it's happening slowly, is Canada is starting to get some more liquidity. We're starting to get larger exits, larger companies, where people are now going to fund uh, Canadian companies with you know, larger and larger funding rounds, which is going to help get more liquidity into the ecosystem, get more angel investors, and hopefully it's going to help uh, project more startups. Um, but yeah, I think you know, for internet companies especially, um, really thinking about scaling very quickly and, and not just you know, trying to build a lifestyle business if you're trying to do the venture scale thing. Um, because there are two different types of business. And um, Julia, I'll, I'll yeah. parlay it over to you. That's, a, that's such a great insight, though, because if you are starting your own business and looking for, for, for venture funding in the U.S., most uh, VCs are going to want you to lose a lot of money. They want you to lose all the money over the first, you said, five years because they've invested in a hundred of you yeah. knowing that just one is, is going to work out. And that's okay. The math works that way. Julia, how are you uh, thinking about scale? Yeah, so um, just to your point, Canada has the population of California. So when you're actually selling physical products, it gets really difficult to actually build to a volume and a level um, in CPG where I can now compete with those massive conglomerates the that are CPG coming consumer Sorry, consumer packaged goods, yeah. yes. Um, so it's, it's really difficult for me to compete. Like it's much easier for the massive conglomerates in the US to come up, plus they have the benefit of currency exchange. Um, Whereas down in Canada now, we have to build to a level to try and compete with the Americans. It's really tough to do manufacturing here and ship abroad. Um, there's also so, so many regulations and exporting. It's, it's really tough. Um, and then just to your point in regards to culture, I think there is a massive change in regards to Americans and Canadians. When you compare them, we tend to be a lot more conservative. Um, and that's from financing. Um, you know, they always want to see proof of concept, even when launching in retailers. They're like, who else has you? Where in the US, it's more of the Wild West. Yeah. Um, they're like, I want to be first. It's more like a conquest. So um, very different. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really challenging. I, I have not mastered it yet. It's really tough. So to what, what, why do you both stay here? We've definitely considered going south, um, moving manufacturing south, um, and even with an investment firm, like I would love to raise in the US uh, to get some really strategic partners that are stateside because that's the largest consumer market in the world. It would, I would be ignorant if I didn't want that. Um, but unfortunately, they all have a minimum of a certain amount of revenue per month. And I'm always like, how am I supposed to get that off of the population in California when we're so spread out and it costs so much to get the logistics out to um, the different uh, cities. So, and they don't care. It's just, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. So I, I definitely would consider moving to the so, States. Tell us a bit about your own financing and how, how it's evolved. 
Yeah, so I've done it all through debt financing, um, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> I still own 100% of my equity, um, and I wanted to get it to a place where we could actually get a strategic partner. Um, it's not like in tech, again, when you're in food, it's the worst. We're literally like the, the valuation that we get. I think like in tech, you could literally have pre-revenue and they're like 20 times valuation. And I'm like, screw you. Because <laughs> like, I'm like peeling potatoes. I hate you all in tech. And in food, you're literally lucky to get like three to five times of your revenue. Like you're lucky to get that. So it's it's really tough, really tough. Yeah. Okay. So Braden, talk, talk about your own journey with finance. In terms of financing, uh, the way it often works in tech is it's really, really hard to get financing until it's not, and then it becomes really, really easy. And so um, how that typically looks is no one wants to move first. It's all about finding a lead investor. Who, you know, who's on your cap table? Who's already invested? I want to be with that person. And so we were struggling to get investment, struggling to get investment. And finally, we convinced Ripple Ventures in Toronto, uh, which is a great VC firm, to put in the first check. And then from there, we were able to quickly fill up the rest of the round. When we were in, uh, doing our seed round, actually, we were in the valley where I just did a one-way ticket to Silicon Valley. And I was like, I will see you guys when you know, I'm going to come back with a million bucks. And uh, that was it. And so I lit, like, did like eight different Airbnbs. And like, it was just like the worst. Um, but eventually, like, one firm did bite. Yeah, after like, so many rejections, like 30 plus rejections, one firm bit. And then we were able to fill up like, you know, the founder of Envision all of a sudden reaches out and like, the founder of like, Webflow and Eventbrite. And, like, I was like, where were you guys when like two weeks ago, I was like crying on a couch at 1 a.m. because no one was fund us. Um, and all of a sudden, they, you know, they come out of the weed works because they hear that someone else is investing. And so that's typically how it happens. It's just about really uh, struggling to find that one. That's a really important message. Uh, we've in previous disruptors had uh, Michelle Romano, you may know from Dragon's Den, and Alan Lau, founder of, uh, of Wattpad. They said exactly the same yeah. thing, that uh, they've got a lot of people who want to be second investors. But uh, finding that first investor is really hard in, in Canada, and they, they just hustled. You gotta you gotta hustle, but that's something as a country we've got to get much uh, much better at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think when you're financing, it's really important that you treat your financing the same way as you treat your product, and that you're iterating. So, for example, if someone uh, rejects us, don't just be like, okay, you know, woo is me. Um, ask them like, why did you reject us? What's your objection? So for us, it was market timing. They were really worried about market timing. And so my initial pitch deck was like classic, like problem, solution, business model, market opportunity, all that kind of stuff. And then if you actually see the final deck that we raised on, it was seven slides of market. So that by the time that they get to the eighth slide, they're like, I don't know anything about this business, but this is a fantastic market. And that was it. And you just clear that objection out of the way. So it's really important to, to find out why people are rejecting you uh, and to, to be proactive about it. Tell us a bit about how you uh, how you manage yourselves. It's uh, it, it can be really taxing being an entrepreneur. Uh, how do you sort of manage your day and your week and your month to ensure you've got time to think, you've got time to rest, you don't uh, you don't burn out because uh, you're probably the only person looking out for you, Julia. Yeah. Um, so being a nutritionist, I, I think looking after yourself, I think it's a key piece in entrepreneurship that's not often talked about or always talked about. Um, we kind of glorify the sacrifices and the lack of sleep and only getting like, I only got two hours of sleep last night. It's like a competition and it shouldn't be um, because you're really digging in deep and eventually it's going to catch up to you. So um, it's been proven that you need sleep in order to function cognitively. So sleep is massive for me. If, if I don't sleep 
more than six, seven hours, and every person's different, I'm a monster. So uh, luckily for you, I got sleep last night. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would be a monster. So I definitely suggest don't ever skip on sleep, and then just eating well. It's, it's a common, or it should be common sense and logic. Um, if you put in good ingredients, your body will function much better. You'll have more energy um, to really last and think clearly again, because you're not bogged down with all the energy it takes to digest processed food and just garbage. So um, eating clean, lots of plant-based foods, that's what I always focus on. But at the end of the day, like again, I'm sure you'd also echo it, like absolutely, there's mental strain, there's loneliness, depression, like failure, like it's a roller coaster. How do you cope with that? Because you are dealing with a lot of rejection, you have no a lot choice of failure. But to, yeah. right? Like you just, I think having um, a group of fellow entrepreneurs um, is really helpful because you can see it's not so lonely and it's not so you know unique. It's not just you. Um, everyone has issues, and re you can really lean on your network to try and problem solve to get through those issues um, that might really be you know keeping you up at night. Um, yeah, don't be an island. Definitely reach out. That would, I would and that's in anything. Whether you're you know in in a big business or you're starting your own. You, you can't go through life. Uh, we're social beings, we're meant to be. So you, you have to have a good network and support network around you. Um, and yeah, looking after yourself, for sure. Yeah. Braden, how do you self-manage? Yeah, I mean, you know, I wake up at four, go to the, no, I don't do any of this. <laughs> I, I, think, I think there's a, an unrealistic stigma that entrepreneurs are like machines and like, you, you know, you s they get up super early and they go to the gym. Like entrepreneurs are just normal people with the regular jobs is, is the way I would describe it. Um, and so typically, like, I, I just try to make sure um, in the early days when uh, we were first starting, it, it is a grind because um, when you're a four-person team or two-person team, your output, if you would do 10 hours instead of, you know, six hours, that has a material impact on the company. But as your company grows, the actual grind that you put in, it makes less and less of a difference of the total impact, uh, sort of the total output of the company. And it's actually much better that you sleep and you're well rested and you have a good social life because it's gonna help you make better decisions. Um, because you know, again, like the, a good way to think about entrepreneurship is you can either be like a sniper or a machine gun, right? You can either shoot a ton of bullets and just work crazy hours and you're hopefully gonna hit something. But as you get uh, later and later into the stages, it's much better to be a sniper. Just work eight, eight, nine hours a day, but just work on the right things. Prioritize your time effectively. Um, you know, the way that I think about my business is there's sort of a triangle of death. It's like either uh, the market's making me feel like crap that day, something's going wrong with our team that day, or like our product is on fire. It's like one of those three things is, is always on fire. Um, hopefully not two, uh, two, two at <laughs> once, but um, you just expect it. It comes with the job. Uh, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And, uh, and yeah, just be like a regular human and make sure you're healthy. Tell us a bit about mentorship and how you've, uh, you've been able to develop mentors. Uh, Braden, I'll stay, stay with you. How, how have you gone about, yeah. um, about mentorship? I, I think uh, it's good to have mentors who are uh, sort of like almost like family, that it's like unconditional, unconditional love. So for example, um, I might not want to have a mentor who also has a very tightly coupled financial interest in the success of my company. I might not want to go to them and be like, everything's on fire, right? <laughs> uh, uh, don't do that. You should have definitely a group of people who are uh, very verticalized in what they're going to help you with. So for example, we have Ramen Ventures in Toronto, uh, their former VP product and VP engineering of Shopify. Those are like our go-to people for product and engineering advice. 
and then we'll have Ripple Ventures for our financing advice. And then we'll have generally a, like a closer entrepreneurial network of people where I can just rant to. I'm like, this thing's on fire, this thing sucks, I hate this, like all that kind of stuff. That's actually really important because it allows you to vent. Um, if you just keep it pent up and feel like you're alone, um, it, it, it gets really tough. Like anxiety is, as, as an entrepreneur is a real thing. Uh, you'll often have to go to, for walks in the middle of the day or you'll go for coffee when you've already had five coffees just to get out of the office. It, it happens and uh, you just need to know that it's, it's, it's a regular thing. Those are great insights. Julia, how, how have you gone about mentorship? Yeah, so um, I think looking to people who are ahead of where you are and or doing something that you really admire or where you want to be one day, I think is a good place to start. Um, and obviously being in my industry, it's, you know, we have a lot of networking events in the sense we have these trade shows where you're literally like, it's like a pony show, you're on, on display um, and the founders are always there. So you can always go and meet up, meet with them, um, introduce yourself and just ask them questions and cultivate relationships. Um, I'll say, since I am in a male-dominated industry, sometimes it can be a little bit awkward as a female. I can't necessarily bro out like I'd love to <laughs> with a lot of guys. Uh, like I have some friends who are guys, guy founders, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I went out for champagne on the rooftop with this guy," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm like his wife wouldn't enjoy that. <laughs> like, you know, I couldn't do that. Like, I wish I could, but that definitely comes. Uh, there's always going to be that certain space." Um, but yeah, you always want to surround yourself with people. I think that's a simple thing. With people who are ahead of you, um, regardless of sex, just lean on them for some advice with things that you're dealing with because it's very likely that they have as well. Tell us about some of the, the, the hard decisions or the toughest decisions you've, uh, you've had to make, Julia. Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, you definitely make a lot of sacrifices because you have to choose what's, what's my priorities. Um, and it's obviously going to be building a business if you're all in. Um, so definitely you have sacrifices with personal relationships. Um, you know, my boyfriend, I'm lucky to see him for the time we sleep <laughs> beside each other sometimes. And that's about it. And he has to be okay with that. Um, my family, I don't see that much. Um, I don't really have as much of a social life as I'd like, but that's just how it is. So, yeah. Braden, what's the what's the toughest decision you've had to make as an entrepreneur? Um, probably having to let people go is, is is really rough. And I think when you let people go, uh, the first time, a lot of people think that it's their it's the other person's fault if you're letting them go. The second that you're actually in the position where you have to do this, you realize it was your failure, right? Like I failed as a person. I shouldn't have hired you because the role wasn't a good fit, or I should have screened better, or like I didn't train you, or I didn't give you enough resources or mentorship or whatever it might be. There was a failure on your part as a manager, um, and now you have to have to let this go, let this person go, and it's going to severely, uh, well, not severely, hopefully not severely, but it's going to impact their lives in in a material way. And so we've had to do you know this a couple times now, and and uh, I, I think it definitely weighs hev you know heavily on you as you know you have to see the, the search for a new job, and and uh, you just try to hope you know you can help them land on their feet as best you can. You know I think um, it's a really good practice to be very generous with severance, um, as you know. At the end of the day, it might be a larger dollar figure, but over like a five, 10 year company, them feeling like they were treated fairly and, and, and sort of uh, spreading good words uh, about your company to the community is, is, is worth more than, than any money that you could you know, pay out. Yeah, what goes around comes around usually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've got just a, a few minutes left. And one of the reasons that we, we uh, hold this event on youth entrepreneurship every summer is not to turn everyone or hope everyone becomes an entrepreneur, but whatever you end up doing uh, with, with your careers to the audience here, you're going to be working with entrepreneurs. Uh, and we think this is an important way of helping to, to develop all of our understanding and appreciation of, uh, of entrepreneurs. I wonder if you could uh, uh, take us towards close with some insights and advice 
for the people in the audience as they're going back to, uh, back to school in a couple of weeks or even next week in some cases. Uh, what should they be thinking about in terms of their approach to school and thinking beyond uh, school? Julia? Yeah, well, say if you are thinking of doing your own venture, which is totally cool, um, just start. Like the hardest thing is always just starting. Take that leap of faith. You'll learn something either way, whether you'll learn about yourself as a person. Like I think that's the biggest thing is I've learned so much about myself as an entrepreneur. Um, and you'll learn obviously about your industry and the failures and whatever you might have. So just do it is uh, not to quote Nike, but <laughs> is really what you should do. Just start. And obviously, if you're not going to be an entrepreneur and you don't do an adventure, um, treat yourself like an entrepreneur, like turn yourself into a fine tuned machine, constantly challenge yourself, constantly learn, constantly be curious and constantly take risks. And you can be an entrepreneur and make massive difference on the economy of Canada, regardless of the institution you're working at. That's great advice. Even if you're in a large organization, be it RBC or, or elsewhere, you can be entrepreneurial and just starting. It's called a startup for a reason. Someone started, started something. Braden, what's your advice to, uh, to yeah, the group here? I, I think I'll sort of do an add-on to that. Uh, mine is find your tribe. So it's really important that when you're actually starting a venture, the toughest thing is your startup won't fail, you'll give up on it, right? Like if, if you just think about it logically, if you never stop working on your startup, it will never fail. Um, and so that's why all startups fail. Um, and so it's really important that you find your tribe of people where you can chat with them and you can continue to update each other on, on progress and motivate each other. Uh, even better if you have a co-founder because it's going to keep you accountable. Um, because again, most people, the, the most college startups will die because what happens is you have an exam next week, you have a social tonight, and you have to make that choice between, am I going to put the two hours to take, you know, put the next step of my business, I'm going to come up with a logo tonight, or am I going to go you know, study for an exam or do this thing? Um, ideally, you can do all of them, but uh, there's only you know, 24 hours in a day. And so find your tribe to keep each other motivated. Julia and Braden, thank you so much. Terrific conversation. And congratulations on all you're building as entrepreneurs. You've been listening to RBC Disruptors. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and submit a rating. That really helps us reach a wider audience. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks for listening.